as uh, Bruce said, what I'd like to talk to you about today is um, some of the archaeological findings that took place at Plenty Coop Park and then how we might be able to understand those in the larger cultural context of uh, chiefs uh, or, and especially crow chiefs. So when we, um, when we look at feasting in, a, in crow society, it's basically broken down into two types of public feeds. One is what's called a commensal feed or empowering and uh, empowering feeds, and what those are is uh, using protocols that pre-exist in the society in any any human society uh, that surround the production and consumption of food. Then um, societies will use those in different ways to bring about some other end. So in Crow society, the place where we see that the most is um, what are called clan feeds, and I'll get into those in a, in a minute. But, you know, human societies do this around the world. So like weddings. Uh, weddings are an, a really good example of this, where food is used to bring two families together and then to begin the process of, of uh, developing a new uh, relationship out of that. The other types of, of uh, feeds or feasts is what's called a patron role feast. These are uh, feasts in which a leader is using food to uh, make sure that uh, his followers or patrons uh, will, will stick with him and follow what he is requesting of them. And in fact, it's such an integral part of politics that, um, that followers of a particular leader expect these kinds of feeds. All right, so then when we um, look at the history of, of uh, feasts for chiefs, uh, there's a lot of accounts that are, are written by travelers, even government officials, uh, trading posts, operators, and so on, trappers that talk about the chiefs and the fact that they've had, that they would have public feasts uh, for their followers. And many times they've actually recorded the uh, speech that was given by the chief at that point, but they don't really tell us about the feed itself, what kinds of foods are served, in what manner are they served, what possible meanings the various kinds of dishes that are served might have had uh, for crows. But with the archaeological work that's been done at, at Plenty Park, we're able to, and, ex and examining contemporary feeds, we, I think we're able to put together um, what kinds of foods were being consumed. Okay, so we have to start out with looking at the historic diet of the Crow people. And it was primarily a, a meat diet, heavy meat diet. Um, with a special emphasis, of course, on buffalo, but the other game animals as well. But aside from the, the meat, uh, what crows particularly relish then and now are the organ meats. So um, the, uh, the way that meat is generally prepared, kidneys and liver were 
and often still are eaten raw, uh, or then roasted over coals. And then the heart, the tongue, ribs, and some of the fresh meat is cooked over an open fire. And then the vast majority of meat is, was historically jerked and, uh, and then dried, and then uh, in some cases pulverized to make what's called dried meat. Supplementing the diet were, were different kinds of berries and roots. So choke cherries in particular, and uh, wild carrot, which is called yampa, prairie potatoes, turnips, wild turnips. Um, some of these items would be eaten fresh. And, but in, in some cases, they would be cooked into, um, so like for the berries, uh, cooked in what is, what is called Indian pudding or um, the roots would be added to stews or broths. And then sometimes the berries would be mashed and dried as patties for later consumption, and then also mixed with fat and, and the dry meat to make what's called iksha or pemmican. Now every society has its specialties, its food specialties, and one that is uh, particularly relished by Crow people is called shibola. And what shibola is, is, uh, is a sausage. And it's made by uh, cleaning the large intestine and then, um, and get, well, removing the casing from the large intestine. And then um, the casing is cleaned and then tenderlo tenderloin from the buffalo or the or nowadays cow is put into the, it's made in strips, it's not ground, and then put into the into the casing, and then first it's cooked over a fire, and then right before consumption, it's boiled. Now the stomach and intestines are particularly important to the crow diet, um, and it's seen as an important, the, the consumption of the stomach and intestines is, is seen as a very important part of crow identity, in fact, because of the fact that it's so, so much a, a part of the diet. Um, so each part of the stomachs, the four stomachs of the cow or the buffalo, are utilized. And so the first one is iha. Uh, iha is boiled and then cut into, uh, historically, was cut into um, little pieces and then used as chewing gum. And um, they, and back in the day, during the buffalo days, a woman who could make the iha pop, the way some people pop gum, was thought to be attractive. So there's, a, there's actually a story about um, the sun and the moon having a debate over who are the prettiest women on earth. And um, the uh, sun says frogs, frog women are the prettiest women on earth. And, and uh, the moon says um, humans, are, human women are the prettiest women on earth. And the sun says, how can you say that? You know, they don't like me. They, I think they're ugly. And, and the brother says, why do you think they don't like you? And he says, because every time they look at me, they, they make ugly faces. <laughs> but anyway, so they have this debate. And they bring one woman from each up to the sky, a frog and a human woman. And um, the mother of the two challenges the girls to different things, the women to different things. And one of them is chewing iacha. 
So the human woman can make the hair pop because she has teeth, but the frog can't. So the frog puts rocks and charcoal from the fire in her, in her mouth to try to get the yeche to pop, but then it just looks worse because it's coming out of her mouth. So the sun agrees, human women are prettier than, than frog women. But that's yeche. Um And then um, the rectilium, ashacho, is uh, what we typically call tripe, the honeycomb tripe. And this is boiled into the delicacy uh, ishbua. And ishbo is basically just boiled tripe. It's just a soup. Uh, the ishbiba is uh, the many folds, stomach, and uh, this is what typically, like my grandfather who was a cowboy, he called it the Bible, because it, it looks like the pages of a worn book when it's, uh, before it's stripped. So it would be boiled, and then the interior lining would be eaten. And then um, the, the last one, Irisha. Irisha is uh, uh, the blue or the marrow gut intestine and, uh, or stomach. Uh, it's cut into strips. And nowadays people cook it over a barbecue. And it's uh, what crow people today call Indian hot dogs. It's extremely bitter. Um, but it's eaten. So all, all of the parts of the stomach are important to crow people. Okay, so what are contemporary feasts today? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know if it's... Okay. Um, is that better? Okay. All right, so um, for feasts today, we have basically two kinds. Uh, one is uh, what are called clan feeds, and these are ones in which somebody is... Um, or the family is actually uh, feeding the person's father's clan. In crow society, are, crows are matrilineal, so they inherit their clan and, and their family relations from their mothers. But the father's clan is thought of as the one that will provide prayers and encouragement uh, for the child. So when the child wants to do something, like go to college or whatever it might be, then the, then the father's clan members are invited for a meal, for a feast. And then when the child accomplishes something, like graduates from college, then, uh, then the same thing is done. The, the clan relatives or the father's clan members are brought in and they're fed as a way of thanking them for the prayers that were provided and the encouragement before. So this is a, so when we look at clan feeds, this is that idea of relying on commensal uh, protocols, how food is treated, what kinds of food, foods are served, and so on, to bring about some type of a relationship for, for an individual. So, uh, clan feeds, typically, the members of the father's clan are invited and food is prepared. And then, usually at the conclusion of it, then they're given material gifts. The idea is that the, by giving material gifts and feeding, providing food to father's clan's relatives or members, then they will in turn 
provide spiritual things, spiritual prayer, you know, prayers and encouragement for the individual. So what kinds of foods are served at clan feeds? This is actually put together as a joke, but it does actually address the major foods that are today provided at clan feeds. So boiled ribs and the whole beef's innards. And then uh, shibala, the, the sausage. Ishbua, the boiled tripe. And then the marrow gut, the Indian hot dog. The heart, kidneys, and its tongue. So right here in this, even though a crow person put this together as kind of a joke, they are actually specifically pointing out the kinds of foods that are important to crow people. <coughs> okay, so what kinds of foods are served at, at clan feeds today? Um, they're usually, there are usually hot dogs, hamburgers, steaks, uh, but baked beans, fry bread or pan bread, and then uh, various kinds of salads, potato salad, jello salad, etc. But uh, today at Clan Feeds, there'll be at least one, if not two, of the traditional foods, of the specific kinds of foods that um, are seen as status foods, as important foods. So these are typically the tongue and the kidneys and ishbua and the shibola and the marrow cut Indian hot dogs. Um, Okay. Now, the other kind of public feasting that we see happening in Crow Society today are public rallies. Um, and um, so somebody's running for some office and they'll have feeds in the different districts and different communities on the reservation. And the kinds of um, things that they are expected to serve are steaks and then the specialty dishes, organ, dish, organ meats especially, uh, ribs, and then uh, the ishbua. Shibola is such a um, time-consuming dish to make that when it does show up at either a clan feed or at a uh, public rally, then that scene is like really going the extra step. So it's pretty rare to see it. Uh, it's, and in fact, it's more likely to see it at a clan feed than it is at a public rally. Um, so, and in fact, people will criticize or judge uh, candidates for particular offices based on what they serve and when they serve it and how much they serve of it. So. Now if we look at Planiku specifically, the um, Archaeological work was undertaken there in the early 90s, and um, it, some of the items that were found during that process were, um, do provide us with some ideas of what Chief Plenicu was doing for his public feasts. All right, so um, who was Plenicu? Plenicu was the last principal leader of the Crow tribe. And um, in that position, he becomes the transitional chief for the Crow people, the person, the leader who leads the Crow people from what we could call the Buffalo days into reservation life. And uh, he took his job very seriously, as we can see through a number of different efforts that, that he undertook. 
And uh, by the time he was in his mid-40s, the crows were permanently on a reservation. And he lives into his 80s. The, um, it's actually that time period that becomes the most critical in his life. So when he is living in the house and the community of prior has been established is when he takes on his biggest role as a political leader. And um, even though he may have established his uh, authority through military activity, historically Crow leaders had to prove that they could be leaders by attaining four specific war honors. Touching a live enemy in battle, taking an enemy's weapons, taking an enemy's horse, and then leading a successful war party. A successful war party is one that goes against the enemy, uh, gains evidence of their action, and then returns without any injury or death to their own party. That's a su successful war leader. Once an individual did that, then they were considered a chief. But it's the actions that they do after that that proves whether they really are a leader or not. Are they generous? Are they diplomatic? Are they able to negotiate it internally and externally uh, for the best interests of their own people? Those types of things. So that's what we see with Planiku. He proved himself to be a warrior, and he accomplished the four war deeds necessary to be a chief, but it's actually his actions afterwards uh, that prove what kind of a leader he was. So in uh, 1880, uh, Planiku agreed or wished to have his home become a park for all people to enjoy. And um, the initial house, which is this central part here, was a story and a half high, and then additions through the years uh, were added on. Whoops. Well, there we go. First this part, and then an extension on the back here. He was originally allotted 320 acres of land, and then in 1928, he don donated 190 acres to uh, to a park, okay. which is now a state park. <laughs> All right, so when we look at the structures that existed at the time that the chief was alive, this is what was there. So we have uh, buggy sheds and a, basically a saddle shed here. This was a store, which is still there. And then uh, to the west were corrals, or to the east, I'm sorry and then the house itself, and then here's the spring, and then there was a sweat lodge by the spring. It's this area right here that I'm terming a courtyard that becomes of most interest uh, to public uh, feeds. Most of the time, the chief and his wives uh, stayed in this area, in this sort of courtyard area by the house. And typically, a wall tent was there, or even a teepee. Even after um, frame structures or cabins had been built for crow people, they still preferred to, to live in teepees or wall tents. And in fact, they thought of that living inside of a structure, like a, a frame house or a log cabin, was actually unhealthy. And in fact, it was, because of tuberculosis. So um, they preferred to stay outside, especially the, the people who lived all their lives in teepees. 
uh, preferred to stay outside. So that's what we have going on here. Here's, the, here's Chief Plenikou sitting outside the wall tent. This is his niece, uh, Iva Bulltail, who took care of him in the latter part of his life. And this is Iva's daughters trying to hide, I think, from the camera. But here we can see the whole thing all together. So here's the house. There's the courtyard area, the buggy shed, and so on. Um, Iva Bulltail's youngest brother was a man named John Bulltail. And uh, when he was a little boy, five, six years old, he was actually being raised by his sister, who had sons that were about his age. And uh, fortunately, I got to know John Bultel and interview him during this process. And I asked him about the, where did Plenikou have his public feeds? And, and so he described that um, people would sit in this area between the, between the buggy shed and the, and the house. All right, so now the archaeological work that was done at the courtyard area. Uh, the, the park wanted to put in a fire suppression equipment into the house. And essentially what, would that, what that would mean was that a pipe, a water pipe would be put across, basically right through the center of the, of the um, courtyard area. And so um, archaeological work was undertaken to make sure that that process wouldn't disturb, or if it did, uh, what was there. Okay, and um, what was found was a significant amount of food, or debris from food. So, um, seeds from berries, and um, then um, different kinds of bone from basically rib, a lot of it was rib bone. Some of it was professionally uh, butchered, and others was what we, what we could call home butchered. Um, okay, so then I think, let's see. Got, yeah, and then also what was found were different kinds of um, dishes, or at least the parts of dishes. All right, uh, the food was concentrated, or the food items as such, were concentrated in one of the archaeological squares and one of the uh, test pits, which is marked as uh, Shovel Pit 7, which was near the center of the, of the courtyard area. And in here was a part, they ex when they did the excavation, it revealed part of a hearth, and then around it were the the different kinds of debris. So we have the hearth, uh, shards from at least eight serving bowls and platters, 120 choke cherries, seeds, 22 juneberry, etc. the ribs, uh, some of them professionally done and others that were home butchered, and then uh, miscellaneous bones, cattle bones. So this is what they look like. Uh, this shows us the types of uh, items that were coming out of rib bone, professionally butchered rib bone, pieces of plates. And this says uh, Cleveland, China on it. And uh, 
My wife is a professional second-hand or garage store kind of person, and she found one. That's a china plate platter. Uh, and then here we have rib bones that were butchered in what we could call home butchering. So you can see it's been hit with an ax two or three times till it broke. And then this is clearly a professionally butchered rib bone. Now it might be surprising to some of you that, that crows were using European types of dishes, but in fact uh, by the early 1900s, uh, crow women liked to have um, dishes. So we have this famous photo of uh, a crow family and crow agency sitting at their dinner table uh, with various kinds of dishes. And then this was a photo taken of the interior of a teepee right, right after a family had had a meal. So again, showing the use of European types of china. What kinds of foods did Planku serve? And I asked this question of uh, John Boltail, and uh, he remembered that they ate um, fresh meat and then ishbua. And he makes a point of saying that ishbua is very important to crows. In fact, he felt that crow people were healthier in the past when they ate more ishbua than they, they do today. And, he's, and then I asked him how the food was prepared, and he said uh, the women of the family would bring a cow to the trees behind the house, which are actually still there. And um, there they would kill it and, and cut it up and then roast it over the fire. And then I asked him specifically, is there anything particular that the chief liked to eat? And he reiterated ribs and um, that were purchased at Edgar, at the mercantile store in Edgar. Okay, now uh, we actually have some historic documents. Um, the way that crow people, especially crow people who weren't literate, uh, did business was that if they'd go to a store, uh, then they would be um, given credit, and then that store once a month would send its receipts to the Bureau of Indian Affairs Office and Crow Agency, and then money would be drawn out um, to pay those bills based on the revenue of that particular individual. Uh, so because of that, we have receipts from the big store, mercantile store in Edgar, uh, showing when the chief would, would go over there to buy things, buy food and so on. And over here we have kind of a typical uh, purchase, matches, sugar, coffee, you know, et cetera. He particularly liked tomatoes and bread. Almost every time he goes to the store, he's either buying fresh or canned tomatoes. And this really kind of puzzled me for a little while. It's a little bit off track here, but kind of puzzled me for a while. And I, so I asked some of the older people, and they said that they remember that their fathers or grandparents uh, particularly relished having tomatoes over bread, which is actually something that my father um, still enjoys to this day. So Chief Poniku must have picked that up. But over here, we have a type of a purchase that only occurs about once a month or every other month. There's some basic stuff on this one. Oats, milk, so on. But right here, meat. 35, almost $36 worth of meat. That's a lot of meat in 1931. 
like a prime rib steak in Billings cooked at a restaurant in 1931 was $3. So this is a large amount of meat, maybe as much as 150 pounds worth of meat. And um, the chief, of course, didn't have any kind of refrigeration, so this meant that this meat had to be either dried or eaten as soon as, as, soon as he got back to Pryor, which suggests to me that what he's doing is buying meat for a public feed. There's no really any other explanation for why he would buy so much at one time. So why did Plenikou have public feeds? Well, his primary uh, reason was to assert his authority. So, the, so that idea of the patron role feed and to maintain solidarity among his people, especially in the face of um, the assimilative policies that, that were existing at that time uh, by the United States government. I asked John Bulltail if he remembered, remembered anything in particular that the chief talked about, but he said he was just a little boy. The only thing he could really remember was that the men seemed to talk forever while he went around and played with his relatives and friends. But he said he would always notice that towards the end of the evening or the end of the day, that after everybody had talked, the chief would get up and tell them what they were going to do. So in that sense, it's almost like a like a coach working with his staff, right? You know, the coach is willing to listen to what his staff has to say, or any leader, but ultimately it's his responsibility to make the decisions on what will happen. Okay, and we have a number of different um, sort of sound bites from, from Plenikou, and they very consistently talk about the changing times, how lifestyles are changing, uh, because of the reservation and, and, and because of um, Europeans or Euro-Americans coming into Crow territory. Uh, and they do tend to be directed towards uh, trying to make his followers understand that they needed to take care of themselves, even in the face of the kinds of adversity that was going on. So like the first one where he tells them they've just got to get over the fact that the buffalo aren't around anymore and they need to take care of themselves and get to work. The most famous one is, uh, which is quoted constantly, uh, with what the white man knows, he can oppress us. If we learn what he knows, then he can never oppress us again. His last known public words were um, actually seem to be referencing uh, at least eating, if not public feasting. And so he said, uh, eat the meat and uh, the potatoes and drink the coffee, and when you're done, gather your horses and, and clean them because you're important people. That's essentially what he's saying. So this, is, this photograph was taken uh, just about three weeks before he passed away. So that's uh, public feasting. Uh, and, and Plenikou in particular, and Kalaguk, um, that means it's over, <laughs> it's done, so I'm done.